ancient history, there's a story about a great war and it was around Troy and they had these great massive walls and nobody could possibly get into those walls because of their great size and they were impenetrable. And so the army on the outside said, we know what we'll do. We'll build a giant horse and we'll leave it there and it'll look like an offering like we gave up. Only we're going to put soldiers inside it. And then after the big party, when they get the big horse, because they won, the soldiers will come out and open the gates and then we'll get through those walls. That's the story of the Trojan horse. The problem with Trojan horses is, and we're going to talk about four of them today, but Trojan horses are never benign. Right? You don't just take them into you and set them over in the corner and they just don't do anything. But in theology, there's some Trojan horses. And in Revelation 2, 18 through 29, we need to start dealing with how do we, how do we recognize what they're doing and how do we then work against them? Before I read the text, I want to make sure that I talk about at least three things that are going on in Thyatira that are that when you hear them they will mean something specifically to the people of Thyatira and so we need to recognize that first off in Thyatira their patron god if as it would be was Apollo the son of Zeus and they made a lot out of um kingdom or emperor Domitian was the embodiment of Apollo the son of God and Domitian actually named his son son of God now that seems like a little stretch for us i wouldn't necessarily just name my son something that said he's the son of God that seems a little bit um pretentious on who i might be but Domitian did that. Also in Thyatira, they had a special bronze that they made. And in order to have the recipe for the bronze, you had to be part of one of the local unions. And, and, and so they had these huge unions. Actually, Thyatira, um, they're uncovering all this stuff. They've uncovered all this stuff about so many unions in town that you literally, all the unions cooperated with each other and they all did this stuff, but you couldn't really make a living in Thyatira, unless you were in good with your union. The problem with that for, for Christians was the unions met at the temples and they would have this big feast and the subsequent party that had all the bad stuff going on. And, you know, you couldn't not be part of your union and live. But they also... Because of this, they did this thing with syncretism. And syncretism is a technical term, and you you might not know what it is just right off the top of your hand, but let me give you a couple examples of what syncretism is, okay? Syncretism is this. Jupiter was the head god of Rome, but really... It was Zeus. The Roman gods and, and the Greek gods were essentially the same with another name. But syncretism would do this. So if it went up to the Nordic countries and it conquered the people that followed Thor and Odin, they would say, well, Thor and Odin are really Apollo and Zeus from us. And I know you, you worship them differently. It's okay. They're the same. And as long as you just do your practices and, and do this stuff, you're really on the same page with us. 
Now you might say, well, those are European forms of ancient gods, and that's no big deal. But they did the same thing with every country they went to, including essentially Baal of Israel. They would say, well, that that is just the local expression of Zeus. And I know that you have these practices that Zeus hasn't asked you to do, but but you're doing that. And so because of that, we're going to put sort of a veneer of we're all worshiping the same God, even though we have different practices. Well, you know, the, the farther afield you go, the greater variety this is. And pretty soon you don't have really any defined who Zeus is. If you include Marduk from Babylon, then you have a dragon in there. Or another form of syncretism is kind of what happened in the middle, um, in the great, uh, colonial period from Europe where they, where the, where the religions would go out into South America and they'd say, we know you've got these practices here. We'll just add them into whatever we're doing and you can do that. And so when you go down there, there are some places in South America where the Roman Catholicism is really the original South American religions with a little thin veneer of Catholicism added on top. Well, what does syncretism do? It says, how you worship isn't any big deal as long as we're all on the same page and you get to do your thing and you get to do, and we get to do our thing. Have you ever heard anything like that in our day today? Okay, so I hear, I, I hear some laughing and I hear, I hear, I see some nodding heads and they, we're going to talk about why this is a little dangerous, but I just wanted to go into this a little bit. So when you read this and when we start talking about this, because in Thyatira, he brings up a person's name, Jezebel. And I, now I fully expect that if you went into the church at the time and said, Hey, Jezebel, Jezebel would not have lifted up her hand and says, that's me. What? He was using a code phrase for Jezebel, who is an ancient queen in, in Israel who actually faced off against Elijah. And, and, and Elijah's big taunt at the time was this. If Baal is Lord, then worship him. But if Yahweh is Lord, if our God is Lord, then worship him. Quit sitting on the fence. Or to use an older Americanology language, stop being a mugwomp. Right? You don't put your mug on one side of the fence and your womp on the other side of the fence. It's a mugwomp. So anyway, here we are. This is the text, and we'll go through this. Write the letter. This is uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Write this letter to the angel of the church at Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God. Now, in the book of Revelation, this is the only place that they make this distinction, Son of God, because of Apollo and the cult of Apollo there. Whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished Bronze. Remember, they make special bronze there. I know all these things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent. 
but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. This is strong language. Do you hear the strong language? This is something God really doesn't want to have happen in the place. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to you each what you deserve. But I also have this message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, the deeper truths, as they call them, the depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all those who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them as clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to them. So I talked about this briefly, about Trojan horses. Trojan horses and the deeper things of Satan, it seems to be the the they haven't learned the deeper things of Satan was this. The Jezebel seemed to be teaching some form of, of this sort of story. You can't judge something until you've experienced it. So, you can't actually say anything bad about getting drunk unless you've been drunk. Have any of you ever seen something that went horribly wrong for somebody else and thought, I don't need to experience that to see that it's bad? <laughs> have, have you ever had something happen to somebody nearby and go, oh, I'm going to avoid that? The teaching here and First John is is written to the same area it seems to be dealing with some of this stuff that goes like this and 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 by the way it isn't necessarily that you always have to experience everything but they seem to be saying that you can't defeat satan unless you're perfectly aware of all and and conversant in all of satan's things but another side of that comes to us as parents, those of us who have been parents, that I've seen parents paralyzed by their past experience and say, how do I tell my kid no when I did it? Doesn't that make me a hypocrite? Or a kid saying, how can you tell me no when you haven't ever done it? Do you see how, how sort of insidious this is? Trojan horses that come into our behaviors that say things like, last week it was, I know it's kind of wrong, but this time I can get away with it. This is that on steroids. <laughs> you actually, you know, you, you probably should go and do the brothel once because otherwise you don't, right? Knowledge becomes king. In this viewpoint, we just have to experience it. And if you haven't experienced it, you can't say anything negative about it. Look, I've seen lives that led me to understand that there were some changes that I could make in my life, and I didn't actually have to go through some of those things. I had older brothers and sisters 
I saw them get in trouble for things and then, you know, in the depths of my own wisdom found other ways to get in trouble, but not those ways. <laughs> but here are the three, four ways that Trojan horses come into theology or into our religion or our understanding of Christ. Okay, are you ready for the first one? It's new. It's shiny. Boy, <laughs> we have not seen that thought before. We just need that new thing in here because we are addicted to the idea of the latest thing in our world. Well, one of the examples of that is, are you ready for this? It is syncretism repackaged. They're all just worshiping God in their own way, and it's all good, and and pretty soon, right, have you not seen this um, come up in the last few years? We can't really talk to anybody about Christ because they're really worshiping in their own way. To your own self be true. Well, there are denominations in America right now who say you can't evangelize anybody. Well, what is evangelism? Well, Jesus has done great things for me, and I need to tell people about that who are, who, who might need that. But you can't tell anybody about it because, you know, they're really on the same path, even if they do it completely wrong. Well, here's another kind of new and shiny thing that I've faced in the theological realm like this. They're focusing so much on the therapeutic healing that Jesus brings to people's lives, right? When you go to a hospital, you have a therapeutic healing of some kind. Medicine does this work. But they don't want to talk about substitutionary atonement. Jesus died on the cross for us. And now you might not have heard that language before, but you've, you might have seen places where they don't ever bring up the blood of Jesus, and the reason they don't do that is, is they're downplaying the substitutionary atonement and they're upplaying the therapeutic healing that we receive. And that's how that shiny new thing comes in. And pretty soon, Jesus didn't really die for us. He's just, he just heals us. But you didn't need, you didn't need him to die for us. That's sort of, that's sort of a, a thing that happens with Trojan horses. It's, it comes in pretending to be the new shiny thing, but it might be an old thing that draws damage or draws us away from Christ. Here's another one. Are you right, ready for this? It minimizes the role of Jesus. Let me, let me say this one. Have any of you ever heard this language? The myth of the incarnate Christ. It's not as big right now, but say 35, 40 years ago, the theologians were coming in and saying, you know, Jesus wasn't really the Christ and he didn't die on the cross and all the sayings weren't really them, but there's some really good teaching there. And if you could boil down them just down to the bare essence of it, you don't need a Jesus. You just need to follow those good ethical teachings of the Bible. And pretty soon, you have a bunch of teachings that are cast loose of their foundation, which is Christ. You've punched a hole in the impregnable wall that is Christ. 
And the Christians took it in and said, well, that, that's true, boy. We really need to boil it down to get his teachings exactly right. And in comes the Trojan horse inside the citadel and out come the, the barbarians. Right? The barbarians are no longer at the gates. They're inside the gates. The third way they come in is they major on the miners. I know that we all agree on 85% of what Christianity is, but over here, you do this wrong, and so you're not right. Let me give you an example of this. Okay, I want to make sure that I say this very carefully. I want to say it very carefully in here. Have you ever run into somebody that said, only the King James is the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that it's not, that it's not okay. It is perfectly acceptable to have the King James be your favorite Bible to read. That is perfectly acceptable and all that stuff. But somewhere in there, I know that it teaches, I know these other Bibles teach the Word of God too, but this is really the only one. If, and I've actually heard this, if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, it was good enough for, it's good enough for me. The problem with that is that King Jimmy, showed up about 14 centuries after Peter and Paul, and so they didn't have it. But here's the deal with that. It doesn't really matter how you do it or what it is. There's a denomination in in America today that says this. There's no instruments listed in the New Testament. Therefore, you can't have musical instruments in worship. That's wrong. And if you're using musical instruments, you're not part of the body and you're not doing it right. That is majoring on the minors, if you will. And what they're doing with it is they're saying, we're right, and you're not right, and you're not in. And so one of this, this Trojan horse, what it does is it comes in and it says, this is my hobby horse. This is the thing that I think is really important, and I'm going to draw lines here, and only the people that agree with me are in. Are you God? <laughs> I'm not. I still, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, my favorite quote from the movie Rudy, the priest talking to him, he says, I've learned two things in theological education of my lifetime. There is a God and I'm not him. <laughs> Those are the two incontrovertible truths that that theologian has learned. Boy, we could spend our whole life just focusing on there is a God and I'm not him. But as soon as we start taking on the litmus tests or the, or the, the checks and balances and we say, this is the narrow focus that God is. This is what makes it right. We have let this Trojan horse into our things. It always divides the body of Christ up. On the King James one. And it doesn't matter, King James, maybe I only read the New Living in here. It's not true. I re mostly read the New Living in here, but sometimes I read the New English because it handles that verse better or something like that. But even then, if I quote scripture directly to somebody, and those of you who've been in my, my thing Wednesday night will have heard this from me. If you're talking to somebody and you're quoting scripture to them and their eyes glaze over and they don't get what you just said, do you just let them be confused or do you try to explain? Do you try to explain? Do you know what you are right now? A Bible translator. 
That's what you're doing. You're taking the Word of God and making it understandable to the person in front of you. That's what the Bible translations are trying to do. And use your favorite one by all means. But don't do what some other religions say, which is it's only the Holy Word in the original text. And if you take it out of the original text, we get to say it doesn't actually say what you're saying it is in English. Because it wasn't written in English. And if that were the case, it wouldn't be the King James we would be reading. It would be the Greek and the Hebrew with the Aramaic included. And wouldn't that be fun? I, I want to make sure, yeah. And as Dave, Dave Evans in the back says, you'd be doing this instead of this. Because it would have to be on a roll or a scroll. And I got to tell you, I can read the Greek and the Hebrew, but it was work. And, and some of, and most of the people I took those two languages with said that the Greek was the easy one and the Hebrew was the hard one. And I thought it was the other way around. So we're all slightly different and I am very grateful to have it in the English. Yes, I am. Because then the translation into my life happens in the language that I grew up in. Okay, the fourth. This is the fourth Trojan horse. And this is the one that seems to be going on the most right here in Thyatira, which is this. It misleads on purpose. Right? The other ones... They kind of mislead by, by leading you astray and then you're off on this cul-de-sac and you don't really know how to get out of the cul-de-sac and all these things. But this one, this is the one, remember, she's saying this. You can't beat Satan unless you, you've played his game already. Well, I tell you, you can't beat Satan. Jesus did that. He's the Savior. But, th but one of the things I think about the text that's really important here to recognize is we don't need to just know what the Trojan horses are. We need to know how to avoid them and how to pay attention and what the Bible says about how to get ourselves out of the mess that we might be in. And this text actually has six things about Jesus in it that are really specific to avoiding Trojan horses within our understanding. Okay. So the first one here, let me come back and I'm going to read the text and I'll point them out. I'll skip down a little bit. This, write this letter to the church of Thyatira. This is the message from the son of God. That is the first step to avoiding a Trojan horse. Keep your focus on the true son of God, not Domitian who says he's the son of God. But, but how do we know the difference between one son of God and the other as they proclaim themselves throughout this thing? Well, well, two things. First, Jesus is the son of God, but opens the way for the rest of us to live after death. That's quite a statement. Domitian said he was the son of God and he named his son the son of God, but he doesn't have any way to solve that second problem. He himself needs help with it. So how do you know the son of God? Well, the son of God had this one spot where God came and actually said something about it. He said, this is my beloved son. 
You listen to him. And he did that a couple of times. He did it even within the Hebrew tradition where we listen to the law and the prophets. That's Elijah and Moses. The I'm sorry, the Moses and Elijah, the law. Moses is the man who stands for the law in the Old Testament, and Elijah is the one who stands for the prophets. And they're up on a mountain, and Jesus is with them, and Peter opens his mouth and says, oh, it's so good for us to be here. Let's worship all three of you because you're so important to us. And God interrupts and says, this is my son. You listen to him. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't listen to the law and the prophets. What it means is that the law and the prophets point to Jesus, and who's the authority here? We can search the scriptures daily, so hoping to find eternal life, and miss the source of eternal life, which is a person named Jesus. This is my son, whose eyes are like flames of fire. Our God is a consuming fire, man. He sees the depths of our hearts and souls and his, his gaze, he knows who you are and what you've done. Now, the, there's good news and bad news there. If he knows who you are, he knows all the good stuff you've done and all the other stuff too. But he has the eyes of fire. So you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and he sees you as you are. That is the second step to avoiding this sort of getting lost in the cul-de-sacs of faith and being sort of misled. The third one is this, whose feet are like polished bronze. There might be something like Thyatira that they do that is so good, they've got this unique bronze, His feet are made out of it, man. Something you do really well. Come worship at that spot. Down at my feet. You don't come to the cross to look down on the cross. You come to the base of the cross. You worship at Jesus' feet. Why do we say that that way? Why That's sort of demeaning. We, We have to get down at his feet and worship. He's the one that made it possible for us to live. We are all broken. Each of us need a Savior. And just because you found the Savior doesn't mean you no longer need the Savior. It just means you're aware of your need. And you keep holding on. That's the third one. Down, I know all the things you do, and I've seen your love and your faith and your service and your patience and endurance. But I hold this against you. So he's seen the good and the bad. Didn't I do that? Here's the thing down here in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. That's the next thing on who Jesus is. How do we get there? You have been given time to repent. Everybody has. It's time. What is the day of salvation? The time to repent, the time to change your mind and come to Jesus and understand that he's the provider of this thing. I gave her time to repent. His judgment is not quick and it's not sporadic and he doesn't just throw, well, you did this wrong, you're done. There's always time to repent and come back. One of our core beliefs here is quick to return to God. Right? You're going to blow it. I hate to tell you that. Me too. I will blow it too. And I've probably even blown it with some of you. I'm sorry for that. Quick to repent. Quick to change. 
Because God is long-suffering and he's waiting and his judgment is not hasty. Number five. It's down further in verse 23, um, the second half of this. I will give to each of you what you deserve. He judges each of us and honors our choices. Now you might decide that you don't want to follow this Jesus cat. He's going to let you choose that way. He's going to honor that choice. I would, I would uh, implore you not to choose that way. But he will honor it. If you come and you repent, he will honor that choice. If you worship at his feet, if you seek his redemption, he honors your choices. He knows who you are and what you've done and the choices in your heart that you've made, and he honors that. That's the fifth one. He judges each of us accordingly to what we've done and the choices we've made, and he honors those things. Number six. I have a message for the rest of you who have not followed this false teaching. I will ask nothing more of you than you hold on until I've come to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. Then he says this, they will have the same authority I received from my father and I will also give him, give them the morning star. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about what the morning star specifically means, but one thing I can tell you what it means. It means that you're with him at the end with eternal life. It means that. It might mean something specific about that, but if you've overcome and you hold on and you keep your eyes on him, this is it. He's the one with the authority to get you through it. He makes a promise and he can keep the promise. He doesn't just say, this is the way I think you should go and good luck getting there. That's kind of the human thing, isn't it? You should take your, you know, how do I get someplace? Well, you go down to where they're thinking about building the grocery store and you turn left and you move, and I, you know, lots of luck. Go this way and that way. That's not what Jesus is doing. He has the exact methodology on how to get there. And he promises it and he makes it available. Here's the last thing. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to you. Don't get hung up in the cul-de-sacs or Trojan horses of the world's thought. And how do you do that? You keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, here's a, here's a little thing I want to make sure that you do this. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to point to him and show us to him. But you might be in some place and they start to talk only about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Jesus did his thing back then, but now we have all this power from the Holy Spirit and all that. Well, I've used this example before and I'm going to keep on it. The Holy Spirit has a spotlight ministry and his whole job is this. Look at Jesus. If you go to a national monument, you don't take pictures of the spotlight and go, that's a nice spotlight. I really like that spotlight. Now you might. Maybe you're in the lighting industry and you love good spotlights. 
And you know the difference between carbon arc lamps and, and, and mercury lamps and, and you, I just love that mercury vapor lamp. But you go to see the monument, right? Who's the monument? Jesus. The Holy Spirit's whole job is to point to Jesus. How do you avoid this stuff? You remember that he's the son of God. He's the one that has given us time to repent, that we worship at his feet. He sees our deeds. He knows us and he judges us accordingly. And he makes us promises and he can come through. Right in the text about the worst possible thing you could do at this point of the stage in Thyatira is the example of how to live. Six ways to keep your eyes on Jesus, who loves you dearly.